0: Welcome to Policy Talk, an ACI podcast where we sit down with policy experts, industry leaders, and top academics to discuss today's toughest social, economic, and policy questions. I'm your host, Chris Buschuk. I am very delighted to be joined today by Doug Brake, who directs the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation's work on broadband and spectrum policy. He writes extensively and speaks frequently to lawmakers, the news media and other influential audiences on topics such as next-generation wireless, rural broadband infrastructure, and network neutrality. Doug is a recognized broadband policy expert, having testified numerous times before Congress, state legislatures, and regulatory commissions, as well as serving on the FCC's Broadband Deployment Advisory Group. His written commentary has appeared in publications such as Democracy Journal, Morning Consult, Roll Call, The Hill and Real Clear Policy, and he has provided analysis on air for broadcast outlets such as Bloomberg, NPR, CNBC, and Al Jazeera. Welcome, Doug.
1: Hi, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Happy to be here. Thanks to uh, American Consumer Institute as well, yeah.
0: So, Doug, in an effort to address the digital divide, some members of Congress have and the current administration are advocating for building a so-called future-proof broadband infrastructure in unserved and underserved areas so that we reach 100 percent high-speed broadband coverage, which could suggest widespread fiber deployment. Where is this push for this top-down technology standard coming
1: from? Yeah, sure. Uh, that's a, it's a good question. Definitely a hot topic right now. There's a, a lot of discussion around this concept of of so-called future-proof uh, broadband networks. And I got to say, I mean, it's I get the sentiment, right? It's like we have for decades, for years at least, been throwing billions of dollars of federal subsidies towards trying to close the uh, rural broadband gap, right? To make sure that the broadband is deployed and available of sufficient speeds throughout the entire country. Um, and it makes sense. It's like, I think there's a real opportunity to be able to invest a significant amount of money to get this problem, you know, more or less solved. Um, if you structure it right and get money out there such that, you know, we can try to transition away from uh, the current mechanism of support that sees, you know, money doled out year after year and instead just, you know, build a, you know, decent network, get this done. And then we can, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, check that box. And so I understand the goal that it's like, we want something that, you know, sees this uh, problem, uh, you know, done with. But at the same time, I, I do worry uh, there are a couple of different ways in which people are thinking about future-proof networks that, that could see you know, either uh, a type of build out that's problematic for competition through most of the country or actually sees an exorbitant amount of money spent to connect a relatively, relatively fewer number of households, if that makes sense. It's not clear that everyone has exactly the same thing in mind when they talk about future-proof networks. There are a couple different, um, you know, standards that people talk about. There's the speed component. People say, you know, 100 megabits per second or gigabit per second of speed. And then there's this idea of symmetry of network symmetry that it has the same upload and download speed. I think both of those. I worry that we have a poor idea of, or at least I feel like some in the in the debate in the conversation have a poor sense of what applications actually require when it comes to speed and what what it actually means to be future-proof, right? What we reasonably anticipate future demand uh, and requirements uh, we can see coming down the pipe. Uh, 100 megabits per second is plenty, a gigabit is Overkill for virtually all you know anticipated applications. We, I'm happy to get into that more. I think it's an interesting you know uh, question. But then there's also this uh, question of scalability: whether or not a, few, uh, a so-called future-proof network can can scale up to meet future demand. That makes a little bit more sense to me. Um, you don't want to be investing in technology that that doesn't have a hope of you know getting better over time. But even that, I worry that there's a sense in which we're setting up in legislation to pick technologies that will you know necessarily see these subsidies and doesn't give quite a, as much flexibility for individualized solutions, for different geographies, for different t- topographies, or, you know, if you have a couple of households on the side of a mountain with really rocky terrain, it's going to be really, really expensive to get fiber up there. So I worry even this idea of scalability um, doesn't quite have the, the right amount of flexibility that I think we should be allowing, at least if not if not at the legis- stage of legislation, but at least, you know, at the FCC when they're designing how these subsidies actually go out the door. So, so it's, uh, these definitions are important for a couple of different reasons. I do worry that um, it's like I get the sentiment and why we want future-proof networks. But uh, depending on how that you know, idea gets implemented, I think it could be really problematic.
0: Doug, I'm glad you brought the issue of scalability. So in terms of investment and deployment, what will it take to get fiber to every home across the country? I mean, is it financially feasible and how long would it take?
1: Yeah, it might be worth, I don't know, at least really briefly stepping back and it's like talking about some of the different access technologies that we have to provide broadband, right? It's like right now we have a system in the United States of what we call intermodal competition, where we generally have competition between different types of networks, different types of access technology that we call it. One is the cable network, right? This is... Um, enjoys a great deal of market success because it's uh, pretty high performance broadband. Um, But this is the network that was originally deployed to provide cable television service. Um, That's available to, you know, know, depending on the estimates, like 85, 90% of the country in terms of population. We have much broader deployment of what is the networks that were originally built for telephone service. Right. And so in many areas, at least in dense kind of urban and suburban areas, uh, these networks have been upgraded to fiber. But in a lot of rural areas, uh, they still it still is the sort of the copper twisted pair uh, that was used to provide telephone service. Um, It's very widely deployed, but it doesn't have very great performance, especially over longer distances. Uh, So uh, so we have those two systems throughout most of the country. And then the the sort of newest technology in terms of wired broadband access technology is is fiber optics, right? And this is a long thin uh, piece of glass that uh, you know we shine lasers through in order to transmit information. It's the latest and greatest. It has it's very scalable, right? It can get offer very high speeds, um, but it also right doesn't have the advantage of, of already having a widely deployed network and so to deploy fiber it's like you're doing a whole new build a whole new deployment um, and so it's very uh, expensive uh, requires a lot of labor and you know it's like you're physically stringing fiber up to you know onto utility poles or, or trenching it in the ground so it's the latest and greatest uh, but it's but it's also the most expensive. And so, and I should also mention there are a few others in the mix, right? There are, there's fixed wireless broadband that is very flexible um, for the last couple hundred, couple thousand feet. Um, You have essentially a fiber that gets you pretty close and then you can do uh, wireless uh, to the, you know, the last few hundred feet to individual homes. It also, I mean, can be used, it's a very flexible technology, can be used for for backhaul as well, to connect back into the rest of the network. Anyways, we have all these different technologies, and they have different trade-offs, right? It's like fiber is very high-performing, but it's also very expensive to deploy. Fixed wireless is extremely flexible, can be very cost-effective because you don't have to you know, trench or physically string a wire for the, you know, the, the individual tendrils of the very end of the network, which is where so much of the cost is. And so you can see real cost savings by having flexibility in different different types of, of networks, right? And so getting back to, getting back to your question, uh, the, this question of what it will take to get fiber to every home in the country, right, that would be extremely expensive, you know, especially if we're talking about not just what is already served, at least by like a cable network. If we're talking about overbuilding all of cable to ensure that everyone in the country has fiber, which some people do advocate, um, it would be, you know, several hundreds of billions of dollars, a, a multiple of, of what the current Biden proposal is. It's, uh, I, I think, financially not very feasible, If we're just talking about uh, getting the, you know, remaining customers that don't have, you know, that that are legitimately unserved by broadband, right? Don't even have 25 megabits per second. That's more reasonable. That's around, some estimates have put it around $80 billion. At the same time, I think it's important to note when it comes to cost, the, the cost of connecting right, the, the very most high cost areas. And so picture, you know, uh, a house on, you know, a remote house on top of a mountain where it's, you know, hard to get to, but also the terrain's really tough to get over. It, it's like those last percentage or two is where the costs really explode exponentially, right? You go down in density and have challenging terrain and your costs take off like crazy. And so I get it that it's very politically appealing to say we're connecting all of the country 100 percent with the latest and greatest broadband. But you know, if you want to, you know, do it in a cost-effective way, and you can get 98, 99 percent of the country connected to really dang good broadband. Not maybe not the very best that's available, but but darn good, and you know, capable of of you know providing access to you know all of the the same sort of functionalities, you can do that in a way that's, you know, I don't know, a 10th uh, of the cost of, of something that is on the very high end of overbuilding the entire country with, with fiber. So it really, really depends on on if we want to do 98 99% and how flexible we are with the different types of active access technology.
0: Right. And I mean, is this even something that consumers would want? I mean, I feel like we're putting so much emphasis on fiber and not talking about wireless when a lot of people are just using wireless. I mean, it just sounds a bit off to me. I mean, when and how did the wire become such, such a critical factor in this?
1: It's, um, it's true, yeah. I mean, I do think we get kind of fixated on, it's like, this is the latest technology that performs the best. Uh, this being fiber. Um, and people get kind of, uh, you know, very eager to see that deployed as widely as possible. Um, and it's, I mean, it's reasonable to like want the best for our country, you know, but but at the same time, it's like there, I think are other factors that are worth considering. And especially when uh, it's like when there's such significant economic trade-offs and assuming that we're not dealing with infinite amount of money any amount that we can save on deploying infrastructure can be repurposed to other, other projects, uh, even within broadband, can re- be repurposed to, to efforts to see wider broadband adoption, to subsidize broadband to ensure that it's affordable for all Americans, and would be more effective in getting more people online. So I totally agree that, is, that we need to be, you know, thinking about wireless, fixed wireless, even satellite, I think, for those last most expensive areas to serve um, is a really reasonable solution. And you're right, it, when you actually look at what applications require, um, it's these ideas that we're going to need a symmetrical gigabit just is not grounded in the reality of what we anticipate applications to require. And this, it, it gets a little bit, I don't know, I can see how this is not a you know, very politically friendly messaging, but really when you get down to it, when you're talking about really high speed broadband, the most important application that benefits is high resolution, high frame rate video, right? The, the demand we've had for, for broadband speeds has very closely tracked the availability of streaming video. And as you're, you get faster speeds, you can stream higher definition, video and so when you get down to it right the 25 megabits per second the standard that we have today as as basic broadband that can very easily accommodate you know uh, simultaneous streams of high-definition video if you want to do like 8k resolution streaming uh, with you know 120 frames per second a much higher frame rate than we have now right if you want it is like Knock your socks off high quality video or VR, things like that. Yeah, you might need a higher speed. But when we're talking about the difference between what fiber provides and what fixed wireless can provide, really, when you get down to it, it's not about enabling new applications. It's about enabling higher resolution video, higher resolution VR. And so you get, you know, modestly better entertainment, but we're really kind of approaching the point at which you know, we're getting high enough video resolution, uh, reaching the point where, you know, humans can't really perceive the difference. And so there's a point at which this is going to plateau, right? It's like, we might see real advances in, in speed demand from things like holograms or like 360 video increases it a fair bit. But again, it's not about unlocking new applications by higher speeds. It's about in unlocking higher quality higher resolution higher frame rates and so it's better entertainment but it doesn't change what you're what you're able to do what you're capable of and so i think it's at least worth having that conversation about what this really means and is it worth the you know 100 you know 100 billion dollars or 50 billion dollars like how much is it worth it to people to ensure that that um, that everyone across the country is able to stream, you know, not just high definition, not just DVD quality, but like four four K, eight K, you know, really high quality entertainment. And so, I, I think it's at least worth having that conversation and being, you know, transparent and clear about what this debate really comes down to.
0: So, if we go back for a second to the goal of bridging uh, the digital divide and achieving digital equity. So if the goal is to getting more people connected, how is this approach useful or not in achieving that goal? I mean, is anyone going to be left behind and who, who are those people? I mean, especially when you're talking about both the unserved and uh, underserved communities.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, there's always a challenge when you're subsidizing rural broadband in that the areas w- that need the help the most that are, you know, very low population density, you know, it's legitimately a really hard uh, case for, for anyone to recoup the initial investment, right? It's like these are high cost areas with low population density, so it's, it's expensive to deploy. And then you also have a widely dispersed uh, you know, customer base that is more difficult to recoup your initial investment. And also you have relatively high operating expense, right, where you've got to cover a much broader territory per subscriber, if that makes sense. So it's like the business case is really tough. And so you inevitably see in money invested, money pooling, in more dense areas, in towns um, or cities, right, where it's much easier to recoup your initial investment. This is true, even if you're a, uh, even if it's a new entrant that's you know essentially overbuilding, right? Is building duplicative infrastructure and competing against the the incumbent providers, right? They can usually see a bigger return on investment um, if they're you know even if they're only getting a third of the market compared to if they're serving the only, even if they have a monopoly, right, and they're the only one serving in those genuinely high cost, difficult to to serve areas. And so I think it's really important that we stay super focused on serving those populations that are legitimately unserved, right? Not just uh, trying to uh, you know jack up the speeds and really increase the performance to see a, a you know a quote unquote future-proof network throughout the country. I think at least the f- first step, like let's focus first on getting everyone connected. The economic literature is really quite clear that the biggest economic benefits, right? The benefits to society overall is where we get a deeper penetration, right? Get as many people online as possible and you see a really quickly uh, diminishing returns uh, when it comes to increasing speeds of the network. And so the the important thing is we get as many people connected as possible. And this is right; it's it's an issue for infrastructure. And again, I go back to this also an important issue on the demand side as well. And so any money that we can save on doing the infrastructure side, the supply side, in a more cost effective way, that's money that we that we can and should be putting towards you know subsidies for low income users. Real digital literacy training, broadband adoption efforts. I would see like to see a you know a big pot of money and like a, a program to provide you know best practices for nonprofits and libraries all across the country to be able to do you know really you know community targeted uh, broadband adoption efforts. Provide cheap computers, cheap devices to be able to get you know get people online. The uh, like I said, the economic literature is really clear that, that that's where we see the biggest gain on investment, the highest you know, gain of productivity. And, and it's like, really, if you think about it, it's like, if we can, you know, operate society overall, with everyone assuming that everyone else is online, we get so much efficiency and so, so much uh, economic gain out of it. And so I really think that that should be the goal, at least first focus first on those unserved and try to avoid, you know, having these very high speed targets that inevitably will see a lot of that Money at least cross subsidizing investments that are targeted towards relatively dense areas that are already served by at least two competitors, right? And so, so yeah, I think that it's a it's a really important point. Yeah. So
0: Doug, let's talk a bit about other technology alternatives. I mean, we obviously have now Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos fighting it out to see who could build the best low earth orbit satellite, but then we also have TV white spaces and we've seen a push for 5g deployment for um, a while now. How do these alternatives fit into the current debate and what are the capabilities of these technologies when it comes to addressing the digital divide?
1: I think, you know, again, <laughs> great question. Uh, and this this is exactly, I think what this debate around, you know, quote unquote, future proof technologies comes down to, right, is do we want this subsidy program as part of a potential infrastructure package to be open to all technologies that have different trade offs, right, that have different levels of performance, different, you know, cost benefits, and also, um, you know, just wildly different architectures, right, when you talk about talk about satellite service. Um, And so, so I absolutely think that the, the digital divide, particularly when it comes to infrastructure, is a difficult enough problem getting broadband out to everyone that we should have all the tools available to providers to be able to, to meet this challenge, right? We don't want to be taking tools off um, and potential technologies off the table um, and you know really picking a single technology to try to blanket the country with no matter the costs. Right? I think that's really the wrong approach. Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're right. We have a couple of different um, important uh, alternative technologies. Uh, as you mentioned, low earth orbit satellites, right? These are getting a lot of excitement right now. You know, like the, like the name sounds like they offer, they, they put satellites into orbit at a closer to the earth, a lower orbit than the traditional um, uh, orbit where uh, broadband was, uh, u- where satellite broadband service used to be. I mean, it still is, but but they which provides a lower latency, right? The signal doesn't have to travel as far up to the satellite, back down to Earth, to the server you're trying to get to, to, you know, Facebook or Netflix or whatever, and then back up, right? It doesn't have to go as far, so there's not as long of a delay. Um, so it can offer much higher performing broadband than satellite traditionally could. So there's a lot of excitement about those technologies, I think it's a, you know, still a kind of an interesting question: how successful they'll they'll be, and how well they'll be able to scale up, and meet, um, you know, what level of demand they'll be able to meet at what sort of performance. And so I think it's it's still kind of an open question. But I think there's enough excitement around them, and enough promise with some of the early trials that they've done, that I think it absolutely makes sense to have that sort of satellite technology on the table, at least for the, you know, the most expensive. Couple of percent to to serve, right? Um, you mentioned TV white spaces. This is this is one of a couple of different uh, fixed wireless technologies. Um, TV white spaces. I think tremendous opportunity. It, it, it's it's a, it sounds like kind of a funny name, but but what it is, right, is the the we call them white spaces, the spectrum, the the airwaves. That are available in between television channels where there's not a broadcast uh, television station broadcasting. And so when you think about it, this is especially abundant in rural areas, right? Where you have fewer cities, you have fewer broadcasters, and there's a lot more of this spectrum available. And so we have you know, prime long distance spectrum that can be used towards uh, towards providing broadband um, in rural areas. Uh, a lot of you know spectrum available, it's you know. When you're outside of a the city, there's not as much of a demand for spectrum. And so there's a lot of resources that you can do pretty good broadband um, over you know wireless technologies. And TV white space, I think, is a really, really promising opportunity. And so uh, absolutely, it's like we want to at least, and like I said, it's like, let's just at least not make this decision firmly at the stage of legislation, right? I think the way it should work is, is set up a pile of money and then have the FCC. FCC is now experienced with multiple what they call reverse auctions or pr- procurement auctions. And so they decide a geographic area that's unserved, and they have a way in which an auction can weight different bids. And it's like if you can offer really high performing, low latency, right, a low delay network, like if you can build fiber for so much, you know, then you win the auction. If, however, you know you have a you know maybe a little bit slower technology that isn't you know, quite as high performing. The FCC you know, kind of puts a bit of a penalty on that, but it's like there are definitely geographies in the country where that can still win the auction. And so I would rather see those sorts of decisions made by the expert staff at the FCC who can you know, decide, can look at the economics, see how expensive these different technologies are and how valuable you know, we really think that the different different performance criteria, how valuable that's going to be to consumers you know, 10, 20 years down the road and then weight those bids accordingly. Uh, In the the last auction, we saw very high um, speed networks win the auction. At the same time, there there are some legitimate challenges with the last auction, the Rural Digital Opportunities Fund, but nothing that we can't fix, right? I think it requires a little bit more technocratic, um, you know, screening of applications up front. But it's really clear that the um, that the auction process, this procurement auction, reverse auction, provides much better outcomes than some of the prior mechanisms. And so we, I, I think, it's like put all the technologies, keep all the technologies on the table, and then have an auction, have a market mechanism, kind of sort out for each individual geography, each topography, each community, what makes the most sense. Maybe it's the it's the fastest, you know, newest fiber. Maybe it's you know a fixed wireless link uh, but but let's not tie our hands you know at this stage in the process
0: I do want to ask you what are the impediments to getting these alternative technologies off the ground and scale oh, them sure.
1: up? yeah I mean at least when it comes to satellite right there when you're talking about low earth orbit satellites I don't know there there are a number of different challenges I mean it, it's a very capital intensive you know, project, a lot of you know upfront sunk costs and getting all the satellites up there. And then it's you know, the challenge of how how well does that scale to meet demand? And so it's kinda of, I don't know, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? Where it's like you want to get all the satellites up there. Um, you know, uh, SpaceX has been, you know, launching them quite at quite a decent clip, but I think that they're still not at the scale that they want to be in order to o- offer open service to to everyone. Um, same with same with Amazon. And so, there's the the cost of deploying. There's also challenges around spectrum. That's a whole. There's this is its whole other whole other podcast. So I won't go into to detail, but but satellite spectrum, I mean, it's like we're seeing this revolution, especially in small satellites, where costs, costs of launch are coming way down, particularly because of SpaceX's innovations. Um, and also we're seeing new open source designs for satellites. So the cost of launching a satellite is going way down but Spectrum is a real bottleneck, right? They're not making any more of it. And Satellite Spectrum in particular um, is subject to this, you know, it's a global system, right? And so it's subject to this arcane bureaucratic process at the ITU. And so the the pace of getting Spectrum available for these services does not match the pace of innovation we're seeing in, uh, in satellites. And so that, that's some real challenges. TV white spaces. I think you know, it's, man. It's been uh, you know years. I think over ten years that that folks have been working to see this this technology succeed. It's understandable, right? Where it's like you're sharing spectrum with what are pretty important services. You know, where they're provided in uh, in cities, right? Where you have broadcast stations, you don't want systems interfering with broadcast television. I think that's you know a reasonable a reasonable concern for some of those areas. But but there are ways in which we could tweak the rules to ensure that this is very usable for uh, for rural areas in particular um, that that would we'll see uh, see real success and so so it's like uh, there are some challenges but I think they're they're easily overcome you know especially when it comes to TV white spaces but also for all of the uh, sort of fixed wireless um, access is like get more spectrum out there and we can overcome a lot of these. A lot of these challenges, and then you have a—you do have a really scalable uh, solution for um, for for these communities.
0: One last thing, and uh, you've already alluded to this, but if we don't want technology and speeds dictated by the government, what should Congress and the administration prioritize instead at the moment?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's already we plugged my uh, our recent report. We've written we've written a a couple of different reports on this. and One most recently is our recommendations on how we can uh, kind of tweak the the Biden's infrastructure proposal to to see what in our minds would be a much more successful uh, deployment. But Yeah, I think the main change, right, is to stay focused on getting as much of the country connected in a cost effective manner and then take what's left of that money and put it towards demand side programs. Like I said, you know, broadband adoption, digital literacy programs and subsidies to make sure that everyone can afford broadband who wants it. And so that, that's, I think, I think is should be the real goal, right? Instead of this talk about, you know, ensuring future proof networks for a hundred percent of the, of the country, right. That is like, by definition, right, I can see the appeal, right, that sounds really good. But if we, you know, set those terms, set our, our standards very high for what counts as supposedly future-proof, um, and then define, you know, 100% of the country, it's like, that's going to be extremely expensive. And it's unlikely that we are able to get that large an amount of funding through Congress and have some leftover for the demand side, right, for digital literacy, broadband adoption, and and affordability efforts, um, and so I think that we need to kind of recalibrate our balance, and you know, work to get everyone connected to really decent broadband, good broadband, maybe not the you know the very you know gold-plated top of the line, but good broadband that enables you to participate in digital economy, digital society. And then, you know, take what we can left over to, to, you know, make, get as many people online as possible. And so I, I don't know. I think that, that if we kind of rebalance, there's a a real opportunity to take a big dent out of the digital divide. And I just want to note, uh, I think it's really exciting that we are having these conversations. That there's real momentum to really do this, right? There's been for so long, right? The digital divide has been something that we talk about, debate about, but it's like now, you know, the Biden administration is putting out 100 billion dollars, right? And it's like there's got to be some workable compromise where the hill, you know, you know, comes to uh, you know something that's agreeable to both sides of the aisle. I would be really sad if you know this becomes you know yet another you know partisan fight where people you know you know go back to their corners and, and argue there's you know no way to do this or that right i think it's really about kind of tweaking the proposal you know i understand the appeal of, of you know quote future proof but it's like maybe rein that in for you know the next you know 10 20% of the of the least costly areas that are now unserved to be served with if that makes sense and then, you know, keep it flexible for, for most of the, the rest of the unserved areas. And then I think we'll see a, a much more effective use of money to get as many people online to the Internet in an affordable and sustainable way as, as possible. Yeah, that's the that's the goal I see. Yeah.
0: Well, Doug, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate you having me on.